Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, facing the twin challenges of soaring inflation and an overburdened healthcare system, Premier Doug Ford's government warned there are no easy solutions. Is this their way of pushing their profits into a private healthcare system? Well, we'll talk about that. Emma McIntosh, a reporter from the Narwhal, joins us to talk fact-checking some of the things that were talked about in the speech from the throne the other day. And it was long thought that one could not get addicted to cannabis. But according to a new study, that's not the case. Details coming up in a few minutes. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's swing back to uh, yesterday at uh, Queen's Park. Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dodswell delivered the speech from the throne yesterday, of course, which marks the start of the new legislative session. And uh, a number of different things were promised. Here's a little bit of what uh, the speech said. Nine out of ten high-urgency patients are finishing their emergency visit within target times. Surgeries are happening at nearly 90% of pre-pandemic levels. More can still be done. Your government is actively engaging with health system partners to identify urgent, actionable solutions and will implement whatever measures are needed to help ease immediate pressures, while also ensuring the province is ready to stay open during any winter surge. So uh, that's the essence of it. Uh, and the, the theme seemed to be, especially when they were talking about health care, was there are no easy solutions. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious, for that. We knew that already. Uh, we want to bring uh, Sandy Shaw into the conversation. Sandy is the MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster Dundas, uh, with the Ontario NDP, of course, the opposition party, and a former NDP finance critic. Uh, Sandy, a, a busy day for you today. Thanks for taking some time for us. Oh, you're very welcome. You, Captain Obvious, that's going to be the quote of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is the thing, and look, I don't care what political party is doing this. When they simply say, boy, we got problems, but there are no easy solutions, we knew that. That's why we elect a government to say, yeah, okay, but it's your job to find solutions. And, and I'm sitting there just as a taxpayer right now, as a concerned citizen uh, that's reading about hospital ERs that are closing and, and you know, over weekends, and, and they're quoting old statistics about surgeries, and that's well and good that surgeries are coming on but they're not dealing with the crisis. They're just kind of whistling past this and say, you know, we'll, yeah, we'll get there eventually. What, exactly. Uh, we need some solutions now, don't we? Uh, absolutely. And they're not, not only are they not addressing uh, the crisis, they're trying to gaslight all of Ontario. Uh, you know, we had the, the Minister of Health saying that to call this a crisis would be completely inappropriate. But I, I'd just be curious to know how she would possibly define a crisis, because if this isn't it, I would hate to see what it would really look like. And, you know, they are active. They sat all summer long. They were basically sat on their hands silent, AWOL, on this file as emergency rooms were closing across, you know, Ontario, as we know. In Hamilton, Hamilton Health Sciences, I mean, they're paying nurses double so we could keep our emergency rooms open. Code zeros, as, as we've talked about before, Bill, where there are no ambulances available uh, to, to, to address uh, your, an emergency situation. Um, those are on the rise. And this is all at the same time as this is a government that's underspent their own budget, their own health care budget, I, by about one point, I think, eight billion, almost two billion dollars they underspent in health care. We see. In well, I want to yeah. jump in right on sure. that. Uh, because I saw Minister Bethlen Falby's uh, press conference after the budget was uh, was introduced, or the the throne speech anyway was introduced, and and Global's Colin DeMello was uh, was who's been uh, done done an outstanding job. I know you know Colin well, of course. Yeah. You see him wandering the halls at Queens Park all the time. He he tried to hold Minister Bethlen Falby's feet to the fire in that. Where's that money? 
And government line, and you've heard this before, and we've heard it before, is well, you know, that auditor's report was a moment in time from April, and 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 Colin said, yeah, but now it's the same numbers. As a matter of fact, they're worse. And exactly. and where's that money? Where's it going to go? And they they don't seem to have an answer for that. They don't seem to have an answer. And not only, I mean, Colin is absolutely uh, bang on in this, and it's hard to hold any of these uh, this government to account when what they're saying is blatantly uh, wrong and false, if, if I could say. And the fact is that this is a budget, exactly the same budget they introduced, you know, you know, in, I think, April. And since that time, the crisis has gone worse, gotten worse, as you've identified uh, rightly, Bill. And inflation is rising. You know, we're up 8 Eight percent plus inflation. So they needed to, um, you know, uh, put forward a budget that showed that they acknowledged the, the urgency of the healthcare crisis. That showed that they acknowledged the changing situation and that people are struggling, you know, with with their everyday costs of living. They didn't. They needed to like course correct, and they didn't. They stubbornly stay on the same course, and they keep repeating those talking points that infuriate not just uh, the opposition members like myself, but they infuriate average citizens who know better, who know what's going on in their real lives. Well, there's a couple of things about that, if I could, and I'm just going over some of the text of of what what they introduced here yesterday. Uh, And you mentioned inflation. Uh, When the budget was introduced uh, at the end of April, actually, uh, the inflation rate was 5.9%. It's now 8%. Uh, and and they're just pretending. Well, that was a snapshot in time. It's worse, all right. And they didn't do anything about this. The other element to this too, and especially with what they said yesterday, you know, when when being pressed about the healthcare system, they went back to their their learn and stay grant. You know, where they're going to offer money for uh, foreign trained people to come in here and get their medical degrees and then stay here and and, and practice. But that's five, six, seven years down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with the foreign trained nurses. All right. Uh, they're talking about what they're going to do that might pay off three or four years down the road. They're not dealing with the crisis that we're facing today. It's no new money. That's 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 the underscore yeah. here. Just so our listeners understand, there was not one new cent of healthcare money uh, that was announced yesterday. Uh, that was in, in other words, what they did at the end of April. Even though things are worse now, they're simply saying, "Just steady as she goes." Well, it's not steady. No, it's a, we're heading into a tempest. You know, it's not steady as she goes. Um, and, you know, it's just completely, uh, completely, I, mean, I don't know what word, outrageous. It's such an abdication of their responsibility to just be so, um, to be so uh, tone deaf to what average people are, are going through. And I think that it's, you know, everything that you said is correct in the sense of outrage. First of all, I think people were flabbergasted to see this. And now people are starting to be outraged that they're basically being gaslit by a province to say, Oh, no, that's not happening. There's no problem in emergency rooms. Oh, no, the surgeries are back on track. N- nothing. To, no, it, and to blame nurses <laughs> uh, for the, sh- the closures and ERs to say that they're taking vacation. That is just that, like adding insult to injury because guess what? Nurses have always taken vacation. This is not a, a, a new, a, something new. And, you know, they know, they have known, and they know what they can do to start to address this crisis starting with repeal Bill 124. I mean, how many people have said this? The opposition have said it. All the parties have said it. All the health care partners have said it. Nurses themselves had said it's not even just about the wages, because, you know, as your listeners will know, this Bill 124 caps their wages and their benefits at 1% at a time when we're looking at an 8% inflation environment. But it's not even just the money and the benefits. It's also just the refusing to acknowledge and show real gratitude for what uh, healthcare workers, the conditions that they're working in, uh, in all of our hospitals across Ontario, it just show it just is a, it really is a complete um, 
you know, betrayal of, of their role to protect people. And I honestly can't believe, I hope in my heart this is not true, but I think people's lives have been put at real risk because of their failure to act. There's a reality here that we need to face. And I, I, I know people in the healthcare profession, doctors and nurses, and, and we've had these discussions over the years because this is as bad as it is today. It's not a new problem. But I said the concern here is that governments usually respond to public pressure. And most people hear these stories and they say, wasn't that too bad? But you don't understand how bad it is until you have to access the system. You or a loved one all of a sudden has to go into a hospital circumstance and situation. And, or you have to wait six, seven hours in an ER. Uh, on and on it goes. I mean, those are the things. But unless you're there, I mean, we drive by hospitals in this area all the time. Oh, they have to wonder. Yeah, they're great places. Go inside. And, and, and spend an hour there. Just see how difficult it is. Talk to some of the people sitting in those chairs in the waiting rooms. How long have you been there? You get a sense of it then, but most of us don't take the time to do that. And because of that, we're not applying the kind of pressure we probably should to the government to do something about this. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the information is out there. I think it's about 50% of all nurses currently are thinking they're going to leave the profession. And 70% of nurses say they can't give their patients the care that they deserve. So that's, you know, people, nursing is a caring profession, healthcare workers is a caring profession. To be in a position where they can't look after their patients must be just so demoralizing for them. And then to have, as you say, a government that seems to be living in a different reality. And so you do have to wonder, you know, are they in such a bubble? Do they have their own private health care that they don't see what's going in hospitals? Who are they getting advice from? And really what, you know, and we are left only to really speculate and, and assume that this is a path towards privatization of our health care. Given no other evidence, this is, you know, we can only guess what, what is the plan here? Is this intentional, that they want to destabilize our public health care so that be bringing in privatization is, the, is, is a viable option for people or the only option in some cases? At, you know, at, in a vacuum of leadership, in a vacuum of information, people just come up with their own answers as to what this government's uh, doing and who they're taking their direction from. I want to get a quick answer. I know your time is tight here this morning. Uh, Sandy Shaw, of course, MPP uh, for Ancaster Dundas and uh, Hamilton West. Uh, they also announced yesterday, and Minister Lecce kind of let this uh, out of the bag a, a couple of hours before that, uh, a special fund. Uh, $225 million child benefit uh, that's going to go directly to families to provide, this is their quote, to provide direct payments to parents to help their kids catch up. I'm not quite sure what they mean by catching up. Uh, and I know, no, look, nobody's going to complain if the government hands them a check. Uh, I mean, I got one when they did the license th sticker thing a little while ago. I, that was great, you know, but I would rather the government spent that money on something worthwhile like healthcare systems or some of the other things that are going on. Uh, it sounds to me as if this is just kind of a lost leader. I mean, Catching up for what? It's 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 a rather ambiguous statement yeah. right there. It's just simply say we're going to give you a check so you'll like us a little bit more. I, you know, that's what it looks like. I, I would have to say with the rebate on the license stickers, I, I benefited from that. So many people donated that to to, to my uh, campaign because they, they realized what a, what a, you know, what a, you know, uh, what was the word I want to say? You know, what a trick that was, really, just from the government just before an election. But when it comes to our kids, absolutely, kids and parents have been struggling, uh, you know, during the pandemic and, and ongoing. Kids, you know, need help, and our education workers need help. But this $225 million doesn't really amount to a lot per child in Ontario. I think it's something like $50 per, per child in Ontario. 
which isn't going to buy them a lot of private tutoring services if that's what it's all about. This well, well, well look at let's let's listen. Uh, talk about that. It's not just private tutoring, and if they need that. Uh, we know that there's been a mental health problem as right. a result of what's gone on over the last three years. We also know that if a child is deemed to have, you know, need that that sort of assistance, uh, the wait times are incredibly long yeah. for that. I mean, you know, wouldn't you would rather see that money directed absolutely. towards programs like that to absolutely. help the people that need it most? Uh, 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 absolutely. You know, that, that's not a matter of catching up. It's a matter of finding some balance once again. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure that they understand the depth of the problems here that they're facing. And they didn't create all of them. Let's, let's be fair oh, that's here. True. That's true. Uh, but we're looking for solutions here. And, and I, I, I think they've missed the mark on a I lot of these so. things. I couldn't agree with you more, Bill. And it's so disappointing. It's not a strong enough word to see them just retable the exact same bill. Given the changing circumstances, the worsening conditions in healthcare and people's you know, ability to, to afford, you know, groceries even, and then to throw out this, you know, this, uh, you know, really this goodie of two hundred twenty-five million dollars that I agree should be spent in our classrooms, reduce class sizes, make sure that there are supportive adults in classrooms, make sure that there are mental health workers in schools where kids are, where most, where the majority, most kids will be able to benefit. And so again, it's a government that just seems to. Um, you know, that seems to be governing by, you know, who likes us the most and headlines and what, 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 what latest gimmick can, can we uh, throw out there to, to distract people from the real Sandy, I appreciate, I appreciate the time. Lots more to come on this, of course, as the debate uh, starts in the you know, legislature about yeah. this in the, uh, the days ahead. Thanks, and I'm sure Bill. we'll touch I'm, base I'm again, but thank you for the time. I'm question this morning in the House about the health care crisis, so let's see if we get any answers. We'll be watching. Thanks, Thanks again, Bill. Sandy. Bye. Sandy Shaw, the MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas. Uh, as uh, the questions start about the, the presentation of the, the budget yesterday and the speech from the throne. And look, and I understand that there are pressures and there's only so much money to go around. Uh, and I'm not suggesting this. I mean, they simply said, you know, they, well, we're going to make sure that we don't choose painful tax hikes. That's their word. Or spending cuts in some of these programs. We don't want to, to do that to Ontario citizens. Uh, and that's laudable. I get that. But uh, there's another element to this too, and it's where the money is allocated. And I think that's the concern, and that should be the focus of a lot of this discussion. I'm not suggesting we should be taxed more. I'm suggesting the money that they're already taking from us could be spent more wisely than it is in some of these areas to address some of these problems. Uh, to simply say, well, there are no easy solutions. We knew that, all right? And there's a lot of work to be done. No kidding. We know that already, but show us a plan. Show us the plan to do something about healthcare now, not four years from now, but now. And we didn't hear that yesterday. That's the concern that we have right now. And I think that's, and, and then there's so many other things too. I mean, with inflation at 8% right now, what are you going to do? What's the government going to do? Where's your plan? And it's not as if this thing dropped on their lap last week. They've had time to think about this. and They've had time to do some planning. And instead, we're hearing a lot of the same rhetoric that we heard. And, and, and <laughs> the reality is a lot of people gravitated to that rhetoric because they voted them back in, actually gave them a larger majority. And I get that. That's the voice of the people. But we'd like to think that things have changed. As a matter of fact, things in many ways have become worse since April to where we are today. And the government hasn't seemed to have either understood that or they're simply ignoring it and hoping that we will too. And that's, that's sad. Shouldn't be that way at all. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're into the, uh, the debate that's going to be going on. As Sandy Shaw just mentioned to us a couple of minutes ago, NDP critic, uh, the questions about some of the stuff that was introduced in the budget. And, and a lot of the stuff we already know, because that was part of the, the, the campaign over the last couple of months that got the Ford government reelected. But what we like to do and what we should be doing on a consistent basis here is, is doing some fact checking about what's being said 
and 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 what's actually happening here and and it's it's difficult to do uh, for a whole lot of reasons because you know we've talked about some of the pressures that are on these days but it's important i think that we separate the bombast from the realities in a lot of these situations and our next guest uh, does a very good job of that. Uh, Emma McIntosh is a reporter for the Narwhal, uh, which looks behind uh, some of the uh, press releases that governments put out and tries to get a, a read on exactly what is going on. So we're so pleased that, uh, Emma, that you had some time to join us in the program. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure. Well, let's talk a little bit about a couple of things that are out there right now. And I'm going to start off with some of the things that we uh, heard during the election campaign uh, we know about the government's commitment to electronic vehicles, and, and the fact is we know that a lot of the automakers have made commitments to Ontario. That's a good thing. But one of the things that Doug Ford boasted about was, was basically starting to utilize the ring of fire, which uh, a lot of folks may know something about, maybe not a lot about. Uh, but they think this is going to be part of the future to this because of the mineral extraction that they want to do up there. Uh, which they think is going to lead to, you know, producing these EV batteries here, which is going to, you know, make us all live happily ever after because everything's going to be happy. You guys have done, at the Narwhal, you've done some research on this. Uh, what they say they want to do and what they're doing and what they think they can do, as opposed to what can be done, seem to be two very different stories. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, the Ring of Fire <laughs> is, is a, a big ongoing conundrum in my life. that I, I can't stop researching because it, it's fascinating. Um, so in the throne speech yesterday, um, the, the province made the claim that it's actually in the late stages of environmental assessment work and design work to build a road there, which is probably the most crucial thing right now that would be needed to actually mine in the Ring of Fire, um, which is a very remote region in Ontario's far north, um, like over 500 kilometers from Thunder Bay kind of thing. It's very far up there. And... Um, there are no permanent roads right now. The, f the problem with what the province said is that it, it's it's not in the late stages of environmental assessments. It, um, it basically just got the terms of reference sorted out, and that's just writing the rules for how they're going to, to review it. All of the actual study work, all of the actual consultation work that's part of that process, all of that still needs to happen, and it could take years. Um, and that's kind of the tip of the iceberg with like things that could go differently with this very, very big endeavor. And you know what's interesting about that is because I know that in, in the last term of this government, uh, they the ace that they always pulled out was ministerial orders and say, oh, right, we can circumvent all that. Uh, not so easy with this one. There's an awful lot to, that has to be uh, vetted through this thing. And there's an awful lot of opposition up there, which they don't seem to want to talk about, but it's there. Yeah. And indigenous consent is a huge thing that um, that I feel the Ford government might be overlooking here. Um, there are a lot of Indigenous communities uh, living in the Ring of Fire region, um, in the James Bay Lowlands. And each community is going to have its own view on what should happen um, and what should be the future of their homelands, right? The same as any of us. Um, individuals sure. also have their own perspectives. And the fact is that they need to be consulted. Um, another huge subplot in the Ring of Fire is how any road construction would be paid for. Um, Ontario is not putting up all the cash for this and is asking the federal government to cover half. The problem is the federal government has said that it can't really cover half unless 
the Ontario government gets consent and consults First Nations, which uh, many of the communities say is not currently happening in the way that it should. And, and by the way, just I know you know all this because you've done extensive research on this. Uh, but just to remind our listeners, these negotiations about what to do and who should be compensated and, frankly, even who owns the rights have been going on for years. This is not a new situation or a new problem. Uh, former Premier Bob Ray was was actually involved with this on behalf of the federal government some years ago. Uh, there's been a lot of talk and, and very little in the way of solutions to this. So I, I, I always found it interesting that all of a sudden uh, this government seems to think, oh, don't worry about this. Uh, we, we'll just you know rush through this. Everything is going to be fine. Uh, it, it hasn't been, and I don't think anything's changed. As a matter of fact, I think many of the residents up there have, have grown to say, look, we're skeptical about this. Yeah. And you're right to note, too, that, you know, Doug Ford is really just like the latest premier in a growing line of premiers to get kind of enraptured with the ring of fire and um, the idea of of what it could be. Um, You know, mining companies first found deposits there in 2007. Uh, and back then, they were hyped up about a completely different um, different product than they are now. And here we are. It's 2022. And despite a ton of companies and governments trying to make it happen, it just it hasn't. And um, there is a reason for that. It's, it's a very complicated thing, not uh, least of which and- because of the, the climate impacts, you know, of, of developing um, a sensitive landscape up there. It's, there's a lot. Well, let's talk about let's talk about building roads, which is a problem here in southern Ontario too. As I know, as you guys in the Narwhal have been covering, they they reiterated that again yesterday about Highway 413 that they want to build, and and of course the the Bradford Bypass. And I, I found it interesting. I, I mentioned to my listeners the other day, uh, I was coming back from Blue Mountain over the weekend. I was coming down Highway 10 just outside of Brampton, and there's this big sign that's been out there for years now, you know, welcoming to the Greenbelt area, the environmentally sensitive area, because that's been up for quite some time. And I thought that's great. And about 500 yards down the road is a future site of Highway 413. And I thought, wait a second, there's, there's kind of an incongruity here. You're going to pave this over, even though this is an environmentally sensitive area. The same thing applies up there, doesn't it? Uh, it's, there's a lot to be concerned about up there uh, because of the, the land itself uh, and where they intend on building this road. Yeah, you're, that's a, a really interesting comparison to make. You're right. Um, any road to the Ring of Fire would have to go through an incredibly sensitive landscape, uh, peatlands, which store a lot of carbon and um, are really important in the fight against climate change. And similarly, yeah, Highway 413 would go through Ontario's Greenbelt, which is a frankly incredible protected area. Um, that has a lot of benefits for all of us around here in terms of farming, um, in terms of being a carbon sink as well, and one of the last, you know, places where wildlife habitat can really exist with some kind of continuity. Um, So, yeah, it's an important landscape. Um, And these are some big choices that we're thinking of, uh, of pushing ahead with. And, and listen, I, I know people are going to say, oh, there's, oh, there's those anti-development people again. I'm not debating whether or not they should build the road. Uh, and we're not debating whether or not there should be a road up there. That, that was promised years ago. It's where they want to do it and how they want to do it uh, that, is, that I think is a point of discussion here. And, and you can't just put, you know, push that to the side and say that's not important. It is important. And it's important to the people there as well. And, and you've done research, and you've written about this in the past, Emma. Uh, an awful lot of those indigenous groups up there are very concerned that they're not at the table as these discussions are going on. Uh, there's a lot of people that have a stake in this. Of course, there's the government, the provincial government, the federal government. Uh, as you say, a number of private sector companies that are saying, oh, boy, this is great. Now maybe we're going to get a, a return on our investment into this. But there's also the people who live there. 
And and Doug Ford is saying, well, this is, these are going to promise good jobs for these people. Well, that's that's nice. That sounds good. But at what cost? And the other element, and I know that there are some groups that you've talked about in, in your past writing that are simply saying, we haven't even decided yet who owns these lands and who owns these resources. What about our compensation? And that's a, a subject that the government seems to, not to avoid at, at, you know, at best and, and ignore uh, some of the concerns that are being raised. Yeah, I think the really important thing to consider here is that a road isn't just about mining. It would totally upend um, many people's way of life in this region of Ontario's far north. Um, these communities right now are fly-in only, or you can access them by an ice road in the winter. But that means that, um, you know, the cost of food can be extremely high. It can be very difficult to get health care or services that, that people might need. Um, in some ways, a road could be really, really great, some people say, because it would help with these problems and, and give members of those communities more opportunity. At the same time, I mean, once you build that road, you can't really go back, right? Um, I mean, for better or for worse, things are going to change. Um, and this is an environmentally sensitive landscape that won't recover naturally on its own, right? Um, peatlands form very, very slowly over many, many, many years. Um, and so I think, you know, some people might want this development to happen. Some people might not. But I think a lot of communities are united and wanting to at least just have a real fulsome discussion about it where they are given real input and not just like tokenistic input. And I'll be really, really interested to see if that actually happens. Emma, do you get the sense that uh, since the, the government has uh, had this this revelation now, I mean, you know, I still have to put this in context. This is the same Doug Ford that when he got elected the first time, canceled all these programs, the EV program, the, uh, you know, the rebate programs, everything else. He even took the charging stations out because uh, he didn't believe in that. You know, I'm not going to buy, uh, you know, EVs for rich people. I think that was the quote at the time. But he's had this this revelation, this, this you know, epiphany now that this is good. And I, I'm, I'm happy with that. That's good uh, that, you know, we're moving into the 21st century with this government. That's super. But I get the sense sometimes that they simply say, and now all those minerals, boy, that's really going to make this even better. And that they're trying to rush through this right now simply because of that commitment they've made to EVs. And I, I understand down the road, excuse the bad metaphor here, that, uh, that you know, that makes sense. But at the same time, they're not crossing the T's and dotting the I's before they get to where they want to get. And maybe in that vein, it's good to think about the big picture here, right? Uh, about why crossing um, your T's and dotting your I's might be important. Um, what we're talking about here is sourcing the minerals that could be used to manufacture these EVs that will help us lower our emissions as a society, right? Uh, transition to, you know, lower emissions technology. But is it really a good idea to source those materials from a place that naturally does that kind of work anyway, you know, like by disrupting this natural carbon sink, is it going to be worth it? And that's what that's what those fine details mean, right? Like that's what matters, um, and that's why I think Ontarians should really be paying attention to what happens up there because it it affects us all. It really does. Well, and the other element to this too is, is we've got to be realistic here about timelines. You know, they've they've talked about this, and yeah, we're going to build that road. And you know, the, the premier was talking about as if they were going to you know put the shovels in the ground next week. Uh, there's a long way to go here, and a lot of work that needs to be done before they come to a consensus here. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that they want this by 2030 or 2031, 
may or may not be realistic, but it doesn't seem likely because you can't fast track this and, and you can't rubber stamp something like this. There's, there's an awful lot to this. It's a very complex problem that past, as you mentioned in your writings, past provincial governments and past federal governments have been working on for years and they haven't made much progress on it. And, and there's a reason why. And, and to think that, that, you know, Mr. Ford's going to come in here and all of a sudden all those problems are going to go away, I think is a, is a rather naive approach to take. Yeah, I think you're certainly not the only one to say that. Um, in in one sense, I'll give the Ford government some credit. You know, um, it has pushed forward environmental assessments on roads. Yeah. That has definitely happened. And those things are further along than they were. Um, in other senses, it's really not moving. Um, they still haven't resolved the issue of how to pay for roads. This is, you know, we're talking about roads. We're not even talking about what would happen for an actual mine to open. Um, there, There's no guarantee that a road would actually mean that mining ever happens. Um, because, you know, we don't really, really know if what's there will be worth the cost of getting it out of the ground. Um, that kind of feasibility work hasn't been done. So there are a lot of huge, huge questions that need to be answered. And, you know, can that be done in, in nine years? Um, I would be surprised, but we'll have to see. Well, and and again, it comes into promises made and, and actually doing it. You know, there's that old cliche from years and years ago that, you know, running for office is easy. Governing is much more difficult uh, because now you have the reality of actually trying to implement some of these things. And, and easier said than done. I mean, I, I don't think, notwithstanding the fact that they just won a second majority, I don't think the debate about Highway 413 and the Bradford Bypass is just over yet because there are still a number of people that do have some legal recourse to follow and to, to talk about this project. Uh, I, I can give you a historical perspective from the Hamilton area here, and, and Hamilton listeners would know all about this. Uh, when we decided to build the Red Hill Valley Parkway back in 1948, we thought, easy peasy, we're going to do it down the east end. It took over 40 years. 40 years to negotiate a, 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 a path for it, uh, land rights, indigenous rights. It, it took a long, long time to get something done. I'm not suggesting that's going to happen here, but I'm saying where you want to go and how you're going to get there uh, are not easy in a lot of these situations. And, and this is a far more complex problem than I think the government is actually uh, trying to indicate to us. Yeah. And, and really, like part of it is that these huge projects are very difficult to get a consensus on, right? Um, as you noted, like these things can take a very long time. In the case of uh, Doug Ford's highway projects, there's even some additional uh, stumbling blocks that we should remember, right? Um, in the case of the 413, the federal government is currently conducting its own review of that project. And, and that review hasn't technically even started yet because Ontario still hasn't submitted the right documents that it needs to to get that moving. And that's a lot of like, I know that's down in the weeds, that's kind of like very fine detail, but it matters because the longer these things go on, the more expensive it ends up being, which affects the overall feasibility, right? So a two-year delay or more from the federal government could be a death blow to a project like this. Um, so you're right. I, I don't think that these things are settled at all. The other element to this, too, and it's happening with a lot of other negotiations, and, and frankly, I, I used the, the Red Hill Valley project here in Hamilton as an example, a number of these groups, uh, the, the residents there, the indigenous residents in these groups, don't speak with one voice. Some of them are on side with this. Some of them are not. Some of them have very legitimate concerns about this. Uh, it's going to take a while to sort that out as well. And and I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting that's a barrier. I'm saying it's something that needs to be done as part of the process. And I know governments oftentimes 
uh, and you know this from your reporting over the years, Emma, they, 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 they figure out oh, we're not going to bother the public with the minutia. Well, maybe not, but they have to deal with that minutia for this thing to move forward. Uh, it's a laudable goal. I think it's a good idea that we're moving towards EVs. Uh, it would be fabulous if we could you know, have, have the, the, the facility to build the, the batteries for these EVs here in Ontario. That would be a huge boon to the economy. But there's a lot of work yet to be done right now. It's not going to be as simple as the government seems to portray it right now. And we need to be realistic about that. Yeah, and it, it might help the government to be more realistic about that as well. Um, especially in the case of like securing Indigenous consent for these projects. A lot of governments tend to see it like ticking a box, um, just checking it off, moving on. And that's not the way that it's supposed to be, um, you know, legally or in spirit. And that's also an approach that almost, you know, always ends up garnering more opposition anyway. Um, there can be court challenges, things can get bogged down even further. It, it might actually just be faster to do things right in the first place. Well, maybe maybe there's a light of, at the end of the tunnel here, too, and, and we're talking about that element of it. Uh, as you know, four years ago when they did the speech from the throne when they first got elected, there was no mention of Indigenous people, Indigenous rights, anything, even at all. Uh, at least uh, yesterday, they kicked it off by by recognizing the fact that they were, they were doing their job right now on the lands of the Indigenous people from this country. So maybe there is finally a recognition uh, that they need to be at the table and they need to be part of this discussion too. Uh, we're certainly, you know, hoping that's the way it's going to be. As always, it's it's a pleasure to have you on the program, Emma. Uh, it, always employ uh, the the work that you do, and I enjoy the 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 research that you put into this to make sure that we understand all facets of these problems. Governments sometimes uh, don't always include all those details, and it's important for us to get both sides of an issue like that. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks so much for the wonderful conversation. Take care, Emma. Emma McIntosh, who reports, of course, for the Narwhal. And uh, at the narwhal.ca, by the way, you can reach that. And her uh, handle is emma.mackintosh at the narwhal.ca. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Cannabis addiction is on the rise in Canada and worldwide, as a matter of fact, thanks to higher THC concentrations. Now, I know as soon as I mention this and make a statement like this, there are some people who are going to say, no, but, but, come on, Bill, that's not true at all. Come on. Cannabis is not, it's not addictive. We, we know that. There have been studies have been done. Yeah, it is. Uh, and we need to, to, I think, clarify that uh, before we go forward in this discussion. Uh, to help us do that, our next guest uh, is, is eminently qualified to talk about this and the impact that it's having. Uh, Dr. Anthony Chum is uh, Canada Research Chair and Professor with the School of Kinesiology and Health Science at York University. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the, to the severity of the program and the implications of, of, of the fact that, uh, that addiction is on the rise right now, uh, I guess we really have to do a little work here about you know, schooling people about this idea about you know, pot, pot being addictive. And, and there seemed to be a consensus just around the time that I guess it was legalized in this country and others. It's, a, it's safe. It's safer than alcohol, and it's not addictive at all. Uh, and, and I think we need to clear the air about that, first of all, don't we, doctor? Well, I think when compared to alcohol, it is actually safer. Um, so we did a study uh, looking at all people uh, who were eligible for OHIP between 2015 and 2021. So about 12 million people, 12 million, 80,000 people. Um, and we looked at whether cannabis related hospitalizations uh, were uh, changed before and after legalization. And also before and after edibles became available in 2019. Um, 
what we found was that there was about a doubling, um, depending on the group, um, an increase of about 100 to 230 percent in the number of hospitalizations uh, as a result of legalization. But, but I think we need to put that into perspective. So, you know, in women, for example, uh, 25 and over, before legalization, there were around 44 events per year uh, for all women uh, over 25. In men, it was 63 events per year. Um, and after legalization, it became 97 events per year for women and 208 events per year for men. But this is all uh, for all hospitalizations uh, on average per year uh, before and after legalization in Ontario. So these are still quite rare events. Um, however, in the um, younger age group, uh, we do see a more severe case. So in w women uh, 18 to 24, uh, the increase uh, went from 54 before to 70 events after, and in men, uh, 49 events to 108 events per year. But, you know, these, like, the, the, it, the increase is large, two to three times, but um, it's, it's important to keep in mind that uh, these are rare events. And, and I would imagine accessibility has to be a factor in some of these numbers, too. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, what do you mean by accessibility? Well, it's easier to obtain now. I mean, it's legal substance. You don't have to know somebody who knows somebody to get it. You can get it under the corner store to, to obtain it right now. Of course, of course. Yeah, that is true. It is easier to get. And and this study looked at the basically where it burdens the healthcare system. And, um, you know, hundreds, you're looking at just hundreds of events per year. So, you know, it, it is actually a drop in the bucket and in, in the grand scheme of things compared to alcohol uh, hospitalization, which which are tens of thousands. Well, exactly. And, and you know, I, I think that's part of the problem that, uh, it's kind of an even or, you know, what about this? What about compared to this? And the alcohol uh, cannabis uh, comparison is one that's been used oftentimes, you know, especially, I guess, for some people, that, even before the legalization, to justify saying, no, pot's much better. It's, it, it, it's less addictive. And it is. We understand that. And uh, we're not suggesting that alcohol be used as an alternative. But maybe maybe we could start with maybe kind of a, 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 a layman's definition of, of when we're talking about addiction, what that is. I mean, you know, to the average individual, that means, you know, it, it's an insatiable desire, I guess, or, or need for, for something. It could be alcohol, it could be cannabis, it could be any number of different things. Uh, and, and addictions can be a serious thing because of the impact that it has and, and the way that we, I guess, respond to those addictions. And uh, it's it's interesting that we have to put this in perspective and talk about that because that seems to be the key here. It's not it's not cannabis use that's uh, that's causing these events, as you say. It's It seems to be an addiction to it. And, and then you have to start talking about things like THC in the cannabis. I, a lot of people think, doctor, here listening to this conversation right now, say, well, why, why is that a problem? Isn't that regulated uh, now that it's legal? It is regulated. And when we look at the diagnosis that, that are in the hospitals, um, so the uh, cannabis dependence account for about 39% of all diagnosis for cannabis-related hospitalizations. And 41% of that, um, of all the cannabis hospitalizations, actually are due to uh, misuse. So mental and behavioral disorders due to misuse. Um, so a lot of these could be first-time users as well. Um, some of these may be, you know, people trying 
uh, canvas for the first time uh, and not knowing um, how much to use. Maybe they have edibles, for example, and they overdose on it because they don't feel the effects right away and they have a second edible and a third edible. So that's something to look out for, for sure. Is there a guide for this? I mean, and you know, it's been legal for some time right now. Uh, and, and, and there seem to be indications that, you know, from an economic standpoint, it, it seems to be working. The market is working. And uh, certainly there's an uptake from an, an awful lot of people in the public on this. And, and, and that's all good and legitimate. But at the same time, for instance, we, again, it, we're always going to fall back, I guess, to the comparator with alcohol. But the way that we've regulated that as well. But we've also pretty much, I guess, to a certain extent, Dr., uh, set guidelines. You know, if, if you have this many drinks, you are intoxicated, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a guideline like that for cannabis use and cannabis consumption right now to say this is this is the safe zone? This is is going over that line. I don't have the exact numbers with me, but um, Ontario Cannabis Store, uh, which is the provincial sort of uh, single regulator for the sales of uh, edibles, which are actually one of the most um, common causes for for overdoses. Um, when you have an edible that's uh, sold through the Ontario Cannabis Store or the retailers, a single dose should be like a single item, for example, a brownie or whatever it is. Um, that is um, within guidelines. So if you have a single item, that is within guidelines. Now, if people have multiple, that that's a problem. So definitely talk to your doctor if this is the first time you're having cannabis, even recreationally. Um, you know, and talk to your talk to your uh, primary care physician about that. How does the body respond to something like that? And I'm glad you brought that up about first time users. Uh, it's always going to be a concern, uh, you know. And we've heard stories about alcohol consumption. Uh, you know, the first time somebody consumes alcohol, it can have a, a, a dramatic effect on the body. Uh, if you consume alcohol on a consistent basis, uh, obviously the you know the, the need to get to that level to, it is a lot longer because the, the body is used to it. And uh, mm. is it the same thing with with cannabis use too? That uh, you have to be careful as a first time user, to, as I say, to start it incrementally. Yeah, definitely for first time users, it's it's something to be more careful for. Start with smaller doses uh, and don't increase. You know, just because you're not feeling the effects right away, uh, wait for a day at least before you have more. I mean, to be honest, I, I, I'm i not actually an expert on the uh, metabolites of, of cannabinoids. You know, you should probably talk to a toxicologist for that. But, uh, you know, I, I'm more uh, an expert in, you know, the, how cannabis affects our healthcare system. And and that's the concern at this stage. And, and heaven knows we've talked an awful lot about our healthcare system and the state of it right now and the pressures that are on it right now. And, and I guess one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about in that regard because uh, we've kind of had a theme as we've talked about some of the things that are going on in healthcare right now is prevention as opposed to reaction to, to things like this. And and, uh, and that includes, well, education, I guess, first of all, so people understand exactly, A, what they're using, what they're consuming, uh, B, uh, the effect it may have on them, and C, uh, the effect it could have on the healthcare system if those things are abused. And uh, what we want to do is, is, I guess, you know, do that education element as much as we can to try Definitely. to alleviate some of the pressures on the healthcare system. People understand exactly what they're doing and, and, and you know, and that way they can control what's going on and, and hopefully avoid some of these overt reactions. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I, I do, I would just encourage uh, people who are first time users to talk to the doctor about uh, recreational cannabis use. Um, I think that's one of the ways that we can get this knowledge out there. 
you know, the story that I saw uh, talked about higher THC concentration. And and we, as you've mentioned, it is regulated. We understand that too. But is is there a, a discussion or maybe a point to be made that that, that maybe that that could be adjusted uh, downward? I guess or, you know. In other words, maybe less than than is, is allowed right now in situations like that. And I don't want to equate it to like light beer as opposed to you know full strength beer or something like that. But so, so people would understand exactly what they're doing and and and, and regulate it in in that fashion. Yeah, I believe that every single single dose. So if you buy use a single joint or a single edible, um, anything that we have, um, even at the higher concentrations of THC, a single dose are within the daily limits. So it, it really comes down to whether you're gonna have more than one dose or not to to get that extra THC in your body. And and so that so that is there that is there as a guideline. Uh, are are exactly. people educated about that? Is is there like a warning on the package? I I I'm not a user, so I'm, I'm I, I don't go into those stores. I've never been into those stores. I haven't consumed the product. Uh, no, but are the safeguards in place? I'm not sure either. <laughs> I'm not 100 percent sure either. So I don't want want to speak on that uh, without looking myself. Are you concerned uh, when you see these numbers uh, about the impact it is having on our healthcare system? Are you there? Uh, we seem to have lost the good doctor here. We'll try to reconnect with him in just a couple of minutes. Yeah. Uh, is, are you back, doctor? Good. Back. Okay. I don't know what happened to us there. Are you concerned, though, as you look at these numbers? And as you say, this is this is hardly an epidemic. Uh, we, we, we want to put this in perspective. But as you look at these numbers and the trending that seems to be going on right now, are, are you concerned that that if this goes unchecked, uh, that, that this could cause a problem with the healthcare, uh, which was uh, an already overburdened healthcare system? So when we looked at the trends, there were monthly increases between October 2018 to March 2020. And then after March 2020, it seemed that the trend has had actually plateaued. So there so were no months to month increases after March 2020 in the number of cannabis uh, related hospitalizations. So does that that allays a lot of the concerns then that this may have been a trend at this stage, but it seems to have leveled off. Uh, exactly. Is, is, exactly. Is that because people have been policing themselves and making sure maybe more educated about what's going on about cannabis use? I mean, it, it, I'm not 100 percent sure uh, as to the reasons why, uh, but it did level off um, during the pandemic. And it could be a number of reasons. Maybe people were switching to other substances. There might have been, you know, um, uh, substitution effects, things like that. But we did not look at that in this study. You, you mentioned a few minutes ago for people that may have some concerns about this and, and maybe already uh, using cannabis uh, or thinking about using it. Uh, uh, and you said, you know, maybe I have a discussion with the family doctor. Uh, how are they responding to this and how are they reacting to this? Uh, and, and we're talking about family doctors and, and GPs in general in situations like this. As we've talked about on the program many times, they, you know, they are the portals to the healthcare system. That, that, that family doc, they're the one that can, the ones that we probably have the best relationship with in the medical profession, uh, that we can hopefully be open with about some of these things. Uh, are, are they up to speed on this? Do they have all the tools they need to be able to to advise people about what to do and not to do? Yeah, um, they definitely. A lot of doctors have been educated as a result of legalization. There were. Um, a number of, of um, you know, um, continued education sort of campaigns that are targeted towards family physicians around marijuana use, um, especially, you know, now that we're 
we're all aware that these things are are um, cannabis products are are widely accessible to uh, to Ontario. Um, so family doctors should be at this point be be educated on on these uh, things. And and just to circle back to the beginning of our conversation here about about addiction. Uh, that overuse of anything like this can put us in a rather precarious position. I, this is, this, I, I know we're talking about cannabis uh, use and consumption here in this particular report that was done, uh, but any one of these substances, and there's a variety of them here from, you know, uh, you mentioned alcohol, certainly, and cannabis and uh, prescription drugs, on and on and on. Uh, the key element here, and I guess the big takeaway in, in, in this whole entire discussion, doctor, uh, is, is, first of all, education, and second of all, uh, misuse of the product, which is something that we have to avoid. Exactly, exactly. So, and and that that obviously is is the thing that's going to drive this here. So, uh, to make sure that people understand exactly what's going on, really appreciate the help on this, Doctor. Thank you so much for spending right. some time with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Doctor Anthony Chum uh, from York University, talking about the uh, statistics here about THC. And 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 again, I know because we're going to get emails about this and say, come on, it's not addictive. Everything is. You can get addicted to chocolate cake, uh, you know, if if you consume it every day. I mean, that's the nature. I, I'm not a medical professional, but I mean, we've had people on this program that talked about uh, the addictions and expertise in addictions. And, you know, there gets a point, as, as, you know, to put it in layman's terms, where the body craves these things if you put them in there all the time and, and they want more. And that can be concerning. So, you know, it's, it's difficult and we have to be very cognizant of that, about the impact that it has on our body. And as with alcohol abuse, uh, cannabis abuse can can rear its ugly head. And some of the same social problems that we've talked about with uh, alcohol abuse could exist in situations like this. And I know the report that we just referenced uh, goes into detail about that, about how it can cause a number of different issues, not just physically within your body, uh, but the impact of those on on, on social relationships, uh, school, work, environment, any number of different things like this. Uh, so we need to be wary of that and cognizant of that. And, and, and I've actually talked to people that have been users uh, that fall under the, uh, the, the the parameters of what the the good doctor was just mentioning there, is that they try an edible and figure, I'm not feeling anything, I guess I'll have another one. Uh, and that can be problematic uh, because it's it's like dosage, like anything else. You know, if you're taking painkillers or something like this and it says take one every three hours and you, oh, I took one an hour ago and I'm still in pain, I'll take another one. Uh, there can be serious ramifications to your body. So you've got to, I guess, stick to the rules is what it really comes down to. And, and it's an important message to take in so many different things because we we get to these things and and i guess this kind of goes back to the mindset many of us have these days uh we're looking for instant gratification you know we want it to happen now uh we want the pain to go away now we want to get that if it's a buzz that you're looking for from consuming alcohol or, or cannabis or whatever that you want it now and you want it to be long lasting and uh the body responds in different ways as we're being told uh to a number of these substances and you still have to follow the guidelines and do what you're supposed to do because the downside can can be pretty traumatic to an awful lot of people. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.